Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Perks has earned wonderful praise for her work. Kelly Link called these stories hard-headed and tender-hearted. And Amy Bender wrote, Perks writes so well of love in many of its forms and stages, and she populates her book with such a memorable crew. Mika Perks grew up in a log cabin on a commune in the Adirondack wilderness. She's the author of two other novels, What Becomes Us and We Are Gathered Here, and a memoir, Pagan Time. I believe we have all of those for sale as well. Uh, her short stories have uh, her short stories and essays have won five Pushcart Prize nominations and appeared in Epoch, Ziziva, Tin House, The Toast, OZY, and The Rumpus, among many journals and anthologies. She received her BA and MFA from Cornell University and now lives with her family in Santa Cruz, where she co-directs the creative writing program at UCSC. Ben Lurie is the author of the... Whoa, my voice is changing. <laughs> I'm going through puberty on stage. This is great. Um, it's a little hot. Thanks. Um, ben Lurie is the author of the collections Tales of Falling and Flying and Stories for Nighttime and Some for the Day. His fables and tales have appeared in The New Yorker, Tin House, Electric Literature, and Fairy Tale Review and been heard on This American Life and Selected Shorts. Uh, we're incredibly fortunate to have both of them with us this evening. Please join me in giving them a warm welcome. I get to even get to sit down. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for coming. And um, I wanted to thank Skylight and congratulate them on their happy birthday. And I also want to do a call out to Ben, thank you, thanking Ben to, for talking to me. And I wanted to do an advertisement um, for, um, this is one of Ben's books. I haven't read it yet, but I read the, his other short story collection. He's pretty brilliant and funny and weird. And I highly suggest even um, beg you to buy his, his work. And... Um, and thank you all for coming. I know many of you, and it's lovely to see you. Um, I, before I, uh, I was going to read a little bit, but before I do, I just want to talk a little bit. Um, so Pittsburgh uh, last night, um, um, the rabbi from the Pittsburgh synagogue told this little homily that... Um, he said that if a, there, the Jews say that if there's a, a funeral um, going down the street and a wedding um, going down the street and they meet, um, they, uh, the funeral always needs to let the wedding go first because we always have to lead with joy and celebration. And so um, I, I, I hope that today we can um, talk about love and talk about love over hate and laugh a little bit and um, have a good time. And in, um, yeah, I, I guess, I guess that's what, um, I guess that's what I want to say right now. So thanks everybody for being here. Um, so I'm going to read, I'm, I'm going to read a little bit first and then Ben's uh, and I are going to talk a little bit and then see if you guys have any, uh, no, then read a little more then see if any of you have any questions, and that's it. Um, so the first thing that I wanted to read is actually not even um, exactly in my book of short stories. It's a book of linked short stories, but I'm going to just read my diary from one. No, no, no. Um, yeah, no, I'm, uh, so this magazine asked me um, to write something about the research I did for the book of linked stories, and so um, I'm going to read you that. So this is called 10 Things I Learned While Writing My Link Short Story Collection, True Love and Other Dreams of Miraculous Escape. And all of this stuff is in the book. Okay, 
Number one, Houdini's last meal was farmer's chop suey. In 1926, when he was dying in the hospital of a ruptured appendix, Harry Houdini said he had a yen for the dish. They ordered out from a Jewish deli. Farmer's chop suey is Eastern European Jewish immigrant in origin, named after the American Chinese food American Jews love to eat. Houdini loved, he adored his mother. Once he bought one of Queen Victoria's gowns at auction and he gave it to his mom, who was from Appleton, Wisconsin, by way of a Hungarian shtetl. Houdini made a party and his mother attended in Queen Victoria's dress. Houdini said it was the best day of his life. Houdini's mother was buried in Queen Victoria's dress. To make farmers chop suey, toss radishes, cucumbers, and peppers in sour cream and cottage cheese. Number two, you can buy a dildo online shaped like a pink beaver. The beaver's tongue vibrates. Number three, in a town called San Jose, just a few hours distance from San Francisco, lived the old widow of the Winchester fortune. From 1888 to 1922, she continually built a house of crazy proportions, supposedly directed by ghosts. Even from the outside, you could tell something was strange. There were 13 stained glass windows that had 13 panels fashioned in the shape of spider webs. But no one except the servants could get into that house. They say the front door had never been unlocked. When Teddy Roosevelt came to call, no one answered the door, and he left in a huff. This house was labyrinthian, outrageous, offensive. Stairs ending at the ceiling, a stairwell leading to a door that opened onto a wall. An entire wing seemed to be blocked off. There were 160 rooms, all with the finest decorations, all eerily empty of inhabitants. Number four, kitsune are Japanese spirit foxes. Kitsune can generate fire with their tails. They are tricksters, shapeshifters. They can even transform into humans. You will know them by their golden eyes and their bite. Number five, definition of the word monster. One, an organism formed of various animals in combination like a centaur or griffin. Two, anyone grotesquely deviating from the normal shape or character. Three, anything with abnormal form or structure. Six, an Australian photographer named Spencer Tunick traveled all around the world. In each location, he would put a notice in the paper. Come at 8 a.m. to have a group portrait of your country taken, naked. 4,000 people turned out in Santiago, Chile in 2002. It was a cold day, winter, drizzling, and people were rubbing their hands together, making jokes. 400 evangelists protested nearby. People were waving the Chilean flag, singing the national anthem. Right at 8 a.m., they all undressed, jeans and suits and dresses lying at their feet, 4,000 of them all together for the world to see, laughing and freezing, desnudos. Spencer Tunick wrote that he lay on the ground, looked up at the sky, and felt like he was dreaming. I have to tell you that I was, <laughs> I was giving a reading in Palo Alto a few weeks ago, and I read this piece, and this woman raised her hand, and she said, I was there. <laughs> then she sent me an email and, of her naked in the crowd, and she, yeah, she was there. <laughs> Number seven, a strain of marijuana called 24 karat gold is purported to smell and taste like tangerines. Number eight. The noise coming from the Rosetta Comet sounds like a squirrel chattering. Number nine, Anne Hutchinson, called the American Jezebel, was banished from Boston in 1638 for interpreting the Bible. Anne Hutchinson believed in friendship with all people, and when her husband died, she moved to the New Netherlands outback with her seven youngest children. She had 15 in all. They made a home between the Dutch and the Silinoi. Then the Dutch massacred 80 Siwanoi women and children. The Siwanoi sent a message to Anne and told her there would be retaliation. 
They warned Anne to leave the area to avoid harm. But Anne trusted in God and good neighbors. The Siwanoi massacred Anne Hutchinson and her children, all but her small daughter Susan, who the Siwanoi discovered hidden in the cleft of a rock. The chief of the Siwanoi, Wampage, changed his name to Anne to honor Anne Hutchinson and adopted Susan as his daughter. Susan lived for eight years with the Siwanoi before she was ransomed, some say against her will. I wonder how often Susan Hutchinson thought of her parents, Anne and Anne, and how she missed them. Number 10, the Spanish word ojala has a breathy, warm, open sound. It has Arabic roots from pre-1492 Spain where once upon a time Jews and Arabs and Latinos all lived together by arches and mosaic tiles, by the smell of rose, hyacinth, musk, and amber. Oh Allah, it comes from. Oh Allah, I entreat you. It means hope. Thanks. Is that true about Teddy Roosevelt being turned away? At it's, I think it's true, yeah. What was he? Did he not call ahead at that point? <laughs> no, she really, um, has anybody ever been to the Winchester Mystery House? Yeah, she was, she was really eccentric. Yeah, she was, she, um, she was kind of a shut-in. She, she must have been agoraphobic, I imagine. And she, um, she wouldn't let anybody in the house. And she just kept building it and building it and building it. And um, there was, there's a room, in, like a seance room, in the, in the very center of the house, this little room. And that's where supposedly she talked to the spirits and they told her what she needed to do, which was build. When I was in high school, I read a Sandman comic book that was about the Winchester Mystery House. Oh. And it was a, it's an amazing issue. But I thought he just made it up. Yeah. And then a few years later, I was in an elevator somewhere, and I just like accosted some guy because he was holding a Winchester Mystery House tote bag. Oh, and you were like, "Is that and, from the comic?" Yeah, yes. <laughs> I was like, "What?" And he was like, "What?" No, and I just kept demanding him tell me what it was like and if it was fun and if I should go. You should go. I, I've still never been. You should definitely go. Yeah. It's. I mean, I'm not getting paid by the Winchester Mystery House, but. No. You know, it's, re it's a really cool place. I've seen that yeah. they have uh, Halloween tours. They do. Have, have you been on that? I haven't been on the Halloween tour. I'm too scared, but it's at night. But um, if you're not scared, you should go. I'm scared. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like things I'm could like, happen. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And is there any record that Houdini didn't, did, he didn't really go, did he? Did he? Oh, he did? Uh, yeah, he did. So. He did. Um, not that way, but um, so Ben, there's a, the first story in the collection, um, it's, it takes place in the Winchester Mystery House, and in my story, Houdini sneaks in there, he, he you know, he has, he had this famous milk can trick, and in my story, he, he hides in a milk can, and they take him in, and he, he wants to see, like, what's really going on in there, but, um, but in real life, he really did go to the Winchester Mystery House, um, but he he just walked in, and it was after she died, and he, you know, he wanted to see, they, they wanted him to see if there were spirits, and he didn't find any spirits, so, yeah. Or at least he didn't admit to he it. He didn't admit to, yeah, yeah, yeah. Houdini's kind of a cool guy, because he, um, he really, he really longed for there to be a spirit world, and he longed for there to be an afterlife, but he he spent mo a lot of his life um, uh, unmasking tricksters and hoaxes and spiritualists. So he would go to seances and figure out the trick, like how they were um, pretending to raise the spirit world, and then he would unmask it. He wrote a whole book about it. It's kind of a poignant, um, kind of a, he's in a poignant place, yeah. Yeah. There's a... Something interesting there between the, the milk trick, he sneaks in in the milk thing, and then he has the obsession with the farmer's chop suey. Oh, that's true. La that's a lot of lactose. For, and Jews are yeah. usually lactose intolerant, so yeah. I don't know. There's something deep, deep there. <laughs> Have you had that? I've never heard of it. I'm not before. lactose intolerant, no. No, I mean <laughs> <laughs> the farmer's chop suey. I haven't had no. farmer's chop suey, and I don't know anybody who's had but I but I actually should try it. I, um, it sounds kind of gross, but it sounds like something I ate when I was a kid. And um, Yeah, no, I haven't. Has anybody had farmer's chop suey? I shouldn't say it's gross. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I haven't, but I, I, I'll try it. 
It sounds like it would depend on the ratio. Exactly. Right? At least a little bit of sour cream and cottage cheese, yeah. yeah. A lot of vegetables. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So, um, I don't know, you know, as I was just sitting here right before this started, I looked at the back. Um, I read this book, which was, you know, a book of short stories to me, right? Yeah. And the whole time I was reading it, it's so, all the stories are so tightly interwoven, right? And um, maybe like four years ago, five years ago, I decided I was going to write a book of interlocking short stories, oh. all of which took place in the same town. And like I wrote a couple hundred stories. I mean, like first drafts of stories. And then at some point I realized that like um, none of the people in any of the stories ever spoke to each other <laughs> or about each other. <laughs> Nobody ever went to any of the same like places in the town. <laughs> sometimes the town was like in the mountains and sometimes <laughs> it was like by a lake. And every story ended with the main character either dying or leaving town. Like <laughs> They just weren't connected at all. And well, I was that's really, connection. <laughs> yeah, I was like, yeah, I guess this is not what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, Could be called They All Died. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I was just really amazed how um, fully connected they all were. Oh, well, that's so great. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. And then also, when I was just sitting here, it says it's you're the author of two other novels. And I was like, oh, wait, it's a novel? No. I don't, that's a, either that's a typo or just a really horrible thing from my publisher where he was like, this is a novel, you yeah. know, because they're fancier. No, um, no, I, I didn't think of it as a novel. They're, they're definitely short stories. I, um, I love short stories. I'm a big fangirl of short stories. And, um, so I linked them, um, I wrote all the stories over about a 10 to 15 year period and, um, I really wanted to have a short story collection, um, so I, I I literally spread them all out on the floor, and I um, tried to figure out like how I could make a collection. And I looked at them, and I thought, "There's no way this is going to work." It was kind of the opposite of your 200 stories, which is that um, they are weirdly similar but not similar enough. Um, like for example, there was so because because I had written them in between book projects and so they were sort of following my you know very rough rough autobiographical life like the characters got older as I got older a little bit not completely but um but for example there is um you know in one story there's this Chilean guy who's a scientist and he's got this like really brilliant toothpaste smile and then in another story there's this Argentinian activist with a brilliant smile and then there's this Chilean professor with a brilliant smile, and um, my, you know, my partner is a Chilean with a brilliant smile, and it, it's just, it didn't, it was, it didn't, first of all, it was weirdly similar, it was almost racist, like, what am I saying about Latinos with their smiles, you know, so, um, so I, so I need to figure out what to do, and so I thought, okay, so this has to be the same character, and then it's sort of, you know, if that has to be the same character, then all the people around them have to be the same character, and it started it started kind of linking up in that way. And then I, I but I consciously wanted to do a linked collection. Um, Why well, I don't know, but I, I, it was kind of a challenge. And so I did. I changed all the settings to to a kind of Santa Cruz where I live. I don't think I named Santa Cruz, but basically it is Santa Cruz. And then the characters all kind of became the same. And I I did it all in this big rush, like. I did not all of it. I did about a bunch of it in about a month at a writer's residency, and then I thought I was done. And I, I really, you know, that feeling you, for those of you who write or really anything you do, there was this. I just was like, oh my god, I'm I'm brilliant. This is this is amazing. World, here it comes. You know, this is an this is a novel, and um and I sent it to my. I am embarrassed to say I sent it to my publisher, and I was like. I think I literally might have used the word brilliant when I was, uh, I was like, this is amazing. <laughs> he didn't feel the same way. Like, <laughs> you have to stand up for yourself. Exactly. I started, you know, I, um, he said, he came, he wrote back and he said, you know, good job. He was, he was, he was <laughs> supportive. But then he said, um, I think if you're going to link the stories up, they really should be all linked up. Or just don't link them. You don't need to. It's up to you. But this kind of half, because I had really only half linked them. Some of them were linked, some weren't. 
it was still in that weird in-between place. And he said, I remember he said, you know, like this one story is just exactly like basically the same story as the story in the beginning. And when I'm reading that story, I just feel bored because it's the same story. And so I, I thought, I hate you, you know, and you're an idiot. And then didn't say that though, but um, uh, so then I thought about it and I, and I kind of, I thought, okay, yeah, he's, he's right. Um, as you know, whenever you get bad, you know, you, whenever you get advice about, you know, that you, it's not quite working often, people are right. So, um, so then I spent really like about seven more months and I wasn't teaching at the time. So I was just really only doing that, um, linking them up. And it was super, it was actually a really fun, exciting and fresh. And I felt like, you know, I had a lot of those aha moments like, oh, this character could be the same person as this character. One of the really exciting parts of it was that um, I, I changed people's genders and that really opened it up for me. Like there was a, for example, um, there was this character, Isaac, who was a kind of, he was a, a secondary character in one story. And at the time I just thought, oh, he's kind of boring um, foil for the main character. And then um, I realized that he was a lot like this woman character in another story who, who, you know, just works really hard and tries really hard to be cheerful and no matter what comes her way. And so I changed her into Isaac. And so now she, now Isaac, I'm following Isaac through this story. Um, and I got to this moment where the character now Isaac bursts into tears and cries himself to sleep and I felt my own kind of coming up against my own sexism really like a thinking oh you know he can't no no that's not going to work he can't burst into tears and cry himself to sleep like he could have a tear maybe or you know go on a run afterwards <laughs> um but so but then I just I left it like I left a lot of you know he 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 puts on he cries himself to sleep he he paints his nails to keep his sunny side up, and um, and I, I he became such a more interesting character, I think, a more surprising character, be, because he had been a woman, and so there was, so there was a lot of um, those those kind of fun surprises throughout the story. Did you write more stories then, or were you just tailoring? Um, I didn't write any new stories for the collection. I actually threw out so. Um, quite a few stories because I felt like in the end that they didn't they didn't fit with the collection anymore. So I, um, that was a little tricky, but you know I was fine. So maybe four or five stories. It's a m smaller book than when I started, but um, and I and some of the stories are probably unrecognizable. Um, the last story, for example, I did publish in a different version, but I don't think you would recognize it. Um, it's all different characters and different. Um, the only thing that's the same is that it's it's a Passover um, dinner, but nothing else is really the same. So, um, so things are. So, but other stories are pretty similar. Then I think they're pretty close to what they started with. So. Yeah. yeah. Do you have like? A, I mean, I don't know. It's interesting when when I read the thing about how other novels, and then suddenly in my head I was like, wait, this is a novel. Oh, and yeah. then I was like sitting there, sort of reconceptualizing the whole and I didn't even know how to do that and suddenly occurred to me I don't even know what the difference is exactly like what it, is a novel yeah, yeah. I mean if you interlink I understand when all the stories are completely different yeah that's a story that's a, yeah. yeah I don't I don't know um, yeah I can't answer that either I don't I, I think I want it to be a short story collection just because um, I don't have I already have two novels so I I really want to be part of um, the conversation of short story writers, and I, I want to be a member of your club, so <laughs> I'm hoping you'll, you'll let me join. So. You're like the only one. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. No, we all love short stories. Certainly, they're beautiful. They're, they're amazing. Yeah. yeah. Do you have favorites? Favorite short story collections? Short stories. Um, oh, my God, I have so many. Um, yeah, let me... Wait, can I ask you a question? Yeah. Just to take a time out. This might be like a rude question. I mean, just you and me, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was looking on your schedule, yeah. and one of your events uh, was talking to Tobias Wolf. Yeah. 
talk I, about short story. I thought writers. he, I didn't even know he, I was like, oh, he's a human being? <laughs> I thought he was like a mythological character. I know, totally, yeah. Yeah, yeah I did this um, really fun reading in Palo Alto where, um, so I was sitting in between um, Molly Antipole, who's a short story writer, and she actually was my student at UCSC, um, and um, that is one of the funnest things ever to have. She's, you know, she's an amazing writer and fancy and everything. And then um, on the other side was um, Tobias Wolf, and he was also her teacher. And I'm, um, I was neither a student of Tobias Wolf's. Um, I wanted to be a student of his, and he rejected me from his program. And then that was many years, many many years ago. And I had called. He was at Syracuse at the time, and I called up. Um, I, I don't know. This is the old days, right? I called his office, and he answered the phone. And <laughs> what? I'm like, <laughs> and I'm like, did I get into the program? And God, that such chutzpah. And he said, hold on, let me look. And he looked, and he said, um, no, you didn't get in. But you know what? I'm. I heard you were going. This is another small world thing. I heard you're going to Cornell, and you're going to have a good time. It's going to be great. And um, I was like, okay. And then um, I. So I had just basically stalked him for about 15 years and like tried to, tried to get, you know, tried to, um, I, I, I did it through the guise of getting him to come read at UCSC. Like, um, again, this, you can tell how old this was because I would write him an actual letter and be like, can you come read at UCSC? And he'd be like, no. And then finally he gave in and um, came. And so that's how I got to know him. And um, he's a, it was a really interesting reading. I'm curious about what all you think about this. It was so he's this incredible presence too. You know, he he's he's really good with a crowd, and he you know he remembers all these amazing quotes, and he's funny and fabulous. And he um, one of the things he said in this kind of like Tobias Wolf way. So he said it, so it's true. So he said, well. Short, the thing about short stories that is different from a novel is that short stories are perfectible and short stories, you know, when short stories basically are perfect. And um, I didn't say anything, but in my inside, I was thinking, no. Like, first of all, none of my short stories are perfect, but also I don't think, um, I think Tobias Wolf's short stories are perfect, you know, but I don't think my short stories are perfect, and I don't think that I that that's necessarily what I want in a short story. Um, I do want, I mean, his stories are incredible, but um, I, I think I want something a little more, a little more open and messy, um, open-ended, or maybe I'm just consoling myself because my stories are more open-ended and messy. But what do you, I don't know, what do you think about that whole perfect thing? That, that, that reminds me, there's a quote, I, I wanted to say it was Ambrose Bierce, but I don't, Ambrose Bierce, is the one how a novel is a short story padded. But then there's another one, somebody said a, a novel is a story of a certain length that has something wrong with it. Yes. I don't remember who That's that is. That's probably Tobias Wolf said that. No, I, no, I don't yeah. know. That, yeah. I don't know. I mean, yeah. I, I understand what he means. Yeah. I, I feel like novels always get kind of shaggy because reality kind of enters in, and reality, yeah. you need a kind of mess in order to make it seem like it's real. Yeah. Whereas short stories are every word has to count and they have to belong there and you don't have yeah. time for extraneous stuff. I mean, that's yeah. how I always think of it. But reading your stories, I feel like you're writing novels in very short spans of time. Interesting. I mean, there's Your stuff always has tons of outside... I mean, you're always curious. All your characters are curious about lots of things yeah. that bring in the outside world a lot more. Yeah. I think a lot... Um, I think I was really influenced by this writer. I mean, we were, you were asking me what um, short story writers I like, and um, one of them, there are many, 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 but one of them is this writer named Karen Joy Fowler, who is known more for her novels, but she's, I think she's a really brilliant short story writer, too. And she is so, um, she's all about the tangent, and she really insists on um, it being okay to go on a tangent, especially like a, you know, you, from that thing I, re I read to you first, I think it's obvious I'm really in love with historical, um, weird historical facts and ideas and just weird um, info in general. And, I, and um, she, she brings that into her stories in a way that 
kind of gave me permission to feel like I could do that too. And um, yeah, so. I've only read her novels. Yeah, she's a, she has a collection called What I Didn't See. That is, it's great. Really great. And another one called Black Glass. That's a good title. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, so should I read a yeah, little bit more? Yeah, you should read something. Okay, yeah. yeah. I could read from your book, but it wouldn't sound as good in my voice. So I thought I was going to read something that I haven't read before because it's close to Halloween. So I'm going to read a Halloween something about Halloween. Um I don't know if this is going to work because I haven't done it before, but let's see. So this, this story is called, I'm going to skip around a little bit because it's a long story. I'm just going to read a little bit. This is called The Comeback Tour. When Isaac's wife was 44, she decided she wanted to study karate. It's never too late to change, Diane said. Isaac admired this forward thinking, which was not characteristic of her, and so was a small change in itself. Even though the only exercise Diane had done previously was lifting saute pans at her Michelin-starred restaurant. They'd already paid a small fortune to the karate teacher for five years of Saturday classes for their daughter Lila, but Diane insisted on three private lessons a week. She started coming home saying things like, quote, first thought, best thought, and talking about eating less meat, the kinds of things Diane would have mocked mercilessly in the past. Another small change. After six months of the karate lessons, Diane left Isaac for their daughter's karate teacher, who was a woman, which was a little too much change, at least for Isaac. Okay, I'm skipping over. He's having a hard time. I'll just tell you that. One day near the end of October, Lila harassed Isaac into going grocery shopping. They bickered over what to buy. Isaac was sure all those fresh vegetables would rot and go to waste. Lila followed Isaac down the frozen food aisle, reading aloud the sodium content of the dinners he put in the cart. They were in line at the checkout when Lila gave him a look straight out of a horror movie. What is that, Lila hissed. She turned her back to Isaac and stared at the tabloid rack. What is what? Isaac read one of the headlines out loud. Chicken pox vaccine transforms child into a monster. Lila stuck another look at him, then grabbed the tabloid and opened it in front of her face. In your eye, Jesus, in your eye. Isaac put his finger behind his glasses, wiped, and came away with something nasty. It's like there's a maggot in your eye, Lila said behind the tabloid. So Isaac made a doctor's appointment. But instead of his regular doctor, Joyce, who they'd all been seeing since Lila was born, a pale, skinny woman dressed in black under her white lab coat shouldered open the examination room door where Isaac sat on the table in one of those gowns. Isaac crossed his arms. Is Joyce okay? He asked. The, daughter didn't, the doctor didn't look up from her iPad. She started sneezing violently. One, two, three, four, five. Then she sighed, wiped her nose with a tissue, and in a smoker's voice said, Joyce has gone down to part-time. I'm Dr. Lucille. Joyce and I will be sharing the practice. She sneezed again, then reached out her knobby wrist to grab more tissues, still without taking her eyes from the iPad. Don't worry, it's allergies. They've been acting up. The universe is attacking me. Good for Joyce, Isaac said. Dr. Lucille wiped around on her iPad. I see you, you've recently had an IUD removed. What are you using for birth control now? What? Dr. Lucille finally looked at him, then swiped around some more. Sorry, that's your wife's file. Same last name. Isaac reminded himself about no quitters and keeping on. I'm here because I think I am having some kind of reaction, maybe a food allergy. Do you think I could have developed an allergy to frozen dinners? What are you and your wife using for birth control? Isaac stared at the large diagram of a breast on the wall. My wife and I are separated over the summer. She's with a woman now. I can top that. My best friend, who also happened to be the nurse practitioner in my former practice, stole my husband. That's why I changed offices. Welcome to the pain that keeps on giving, am I right? I like to think of divorce as an opportunity. Oh, are you on Tinder or one of those? I tried that, and let me tell you, I'd rather have surgery sans anesthesia. You know what I mean? But if that's your choice, you'll need to practice safe sex. I'm talking condoms, condoms, condoms. I don't have time to date. I'm not interested in all that. Have you tried antidepressants, the doctor asked, searching her iPad? My problem is that my eyes are infected and my face burns all the time. 
Dr. Lucille came closer, peered into his eyes with a pen light, asked him to look this way and that, pressed around the lids with her long fingers. She turned away a couple of times to sneeze. Then she wrote something on the iPad. You have blepharitis. Your tears are thick and sluggish, prone to block the ducts and cause infection. She looked up. Are you of Ashkenazi Jewish descent, she asked. Yes, Isaac said, but what does that? Because you appear to have rosacea, too, a swelling of the blood vessels in the face that cause redness and a burning sensation. Blepharitis and rosacea often present together. I'm not going to lie to you. It's not curable, and it's almost definitely going to get worse. Isaac remembered his great aunt with her red bulbous clown nose and weeping eyes. Oh, well, he said. Common triggers are stress, hot drinks, alcohol, and hot baths. You have to give up all that. <laughs> Whatever, right? Isaac smiled. That's aggressive. The doctor blew her nose hard. Excuse me? That, that whatever, that's aggressive. I hate that. I moved here five years ago from New York, and I can tell you all that hang tan and chilling out and whatever is just a defense mechanism. Isaac looked down at her rubbery black platform shoes, said carefully, but don't you think wearing black and being sarcastic is a defense mechanism too? The doctor sneezed. After the appointment, Isaac went to the pharmacy to pick up the prescriptions, then back to work and stayed until 11 p.m. As he climbed the stairs to his apartment, he saw the blue glow of the television through the window, thought cooking channel, and steeled himself. But when he opened the door, he heard Michael Jackson singing Billie Jean. There was a prince sitting on the couch with his daughter who was dressed in a tiny black flapper dress. They were holding hands. The prince wore a golden crown at a rakish angle on his black hair, a gold brocade jacket, gold tights, and purple pointy velvet shoes. Halloween. Of course, he knew it was the Halloween season. He wasn't that out of it. He noticed all the decorations around the office. He just hadn't put together that this was the exact particular night. Happy Halloween, Isaac said, and stood behind them. There he was on TV, the king of pop, before he'd finished construction of his mask. Still darkish, with a realish nose, moanwalking. He was a genius, Isaac said. He's a freak, Lila said. But Isaac wasn't sure if Lila was talking about him or the king of pop. And who do we have here, Isaac asked politely. Lila mumbled, this is somebody or other. Isaac couldn't catch the name. It sounded like curling iron. Prince Curling Iron turned and grinned. He was tall and thin, probably Indian. Are you a friend from school, he asked, smiling back. Um, he, said he, was, he said he was taking a gap year, but that he and Lila worked for the same caterer. He wanted to be a chef, too. So, a cradle robber, Isaac said cheerfully. Lila gave him a quick poisonous glance, maybe checking to see if he had pus in his eye, then went back to the television. Isaac stood behind them. The thriller dance sequence came on, dressed all in red, that single curl on his forehead so smooth in his transform transformation into whatever he was turning into. No one could move like him. I used to do the thriller dance when I was in college, Isaac said. Lila snorted. Memories, the prince said. Isaac kept standing there, kind of bopping and mumbling along. There ain't no second chance against the thing with 40 eyes, girl, until Lila turned around and looked at him. Then Isaac said, I want six inches between you at all times, trying to be funny but set limits at the same time. Lila shivered her head and shoulders like someone had walked over her grave. Curfew is midnight, even if you're home, Isaac said. He kept checking back in every 10 minutes or so, pretending to get a glass of water or opening and closing the refrigerator. There's nothing in there, Lila announced sharply, nothing that's not frozen solid. The next day was Saturday, but instead of taking a hot bath, Isaac scrubbed out his eyes with baby shampoo, held a warm washcloth to them for 10 minutes, rubbed the antibiotic ointment on them, then covered his face in a clear prescription film, drank hot water, and went to the office to get ahead on paperwork. He focused on his tasks, despite his burning face and itchy eyes, because the prescription said it could take up to five weeks to work. Isaac came home to an empty house. He stood there for a minute, blinking to ungum his eyes, listening, but there was nothing to hear. He decided the whole place needed a brisk cleaning, so he beat up the kitchen floor with the broom and then started right to work on the couch, pounding those cushions. When he pulled one of them up, he found something. It was a small glass-blown pipe for marijuana, milky glass with green and glowed, glowed filament wound inside it. He held it in his palm. 
Weirdly, it still felt warm, like a little heating pad. He put the cushion back and sat down. He couldn't help thinking that purely objectively, the pipe was cool looking. When he was in college, they smoked out of homely squat brown clay or wooden pipes, or even a couple times an apple with tin foil. Now, not that he had smoked a lot, just occasionally on weekends. Isaac tried to remember the last time he'd been high, maybe at that dance party he had just told Liza about. It must have been the early 90s, his last year of college. He and Diane had, dressed the thrill, had danced the thriller dance for hours, laughing and laughing. Sitting on the couch, Isaac shrugged a little, thriller style, to make himself smile. They had been drinking ouzo jello shots that Diane had made. It was around that time that Diane's beloved younger brother, who was always by her side like an effing bodyguard, a real cock blocker, actually a total a-hole, had dropped out of college, and Isaac had taken his place as her friend without benefits. He and Diane had been dressed as zombies that night, ripped, th ripped things, sort of like Madonna, David Bowie zombies, nail polish, hair gelled up. They smoked pot, he coughed a lot. And then she'd suddenly kissed him, just like that, magic. That had been a fun time. He'd always liked the smell of pot. Isaac raised the pipe up. The bull just held some burnt residue. He sniffed. A gold cloud rose out of the bowl. Then, like a giant powder puff, he felt it fluff onto his face. Something shot up into his nose and eyes like a supersized portion of wasabi. His eyes watered. He began sneezing uncontrollably. Heat radiated across his cheeks and forehead, then into his mouth. His tongue felt numb, as if he'd eaten Szechuan pepper. Then the heat went down his throat, pulsing into his chest and out through his arms. His fingers tingled. Isaac stumbled into the bathroom and looked in the mirror. His entire face was covered in a fine, sparkling gold dust. Gold, like pan for gold, fairy dust, Oscars, disco fever gold. Steady, he told himself. He turned the faucet on and splashed water on his face over and over, like 16 times, golden water swirling in the drain. His mouth tasted funny. He touched his tongue to the inside of his cheek and swore he tasted licorice. He gargled with mouthwash three times. He was breathing heavily, squeezing and unsqueezing his eyes. He felt dizzy. He heard Liza come, Lila come into the house. Isaac picked up the pipe from the bathroom vanity. He cleared his throat, checked himself in the mirror, and went into the kitchen. Lila was standing at the counter eating little puff pastry leftovers from her catering gig. Surprised, Lila said, no food again. Isaac held out the pipe on his palm. What was in this? He asked. Lila sneered. I'm guessing weed. What did you where did you buy the pot? Oh my God, of course you assume that. And by the way, it's called weed. Point is, there's no food. She pulled open the refrigerator. There's nothing here. I can't live on day-old appetizers. You're starving me to death on purpose, aren't you? You want me to disappear. She waved her hands in Isaac's face. Microwave something, and don't change the subject. I'm not going to lose it. I just want to know what was in this pipe. I found it in the couch. There was something gold, some substance I've never seen before. What is it? Okay, Dad. First of all, did it ever occur to you for one second that you bought that couch at Goodwill? I told you not to do that. It was probably owned by a stoner or a dealer or even a drug lord who's going to come looking for the cash he stashed inside it. Or maybe it was mom's pipe. She's going through some pathetic midlife thing, right? Now, can we get back to the main point? If you want to continue life as a cyborg and basically desist from your parental duties, go right ahead. But I'm still an actual, like, real human being with basic needs. So why don't you just leave me grocery money each week on the counter? You don't even have to see me. And I'll buy my own food and do my own cooking. I'll graduate and be gone before you know it. And then you can do your night of the living dead thing 24-7. Deal? Your mother does not smoke pot. And she's never even sat on that couch. Stop obsessing about that stupid pipe. And stop calling it pot. It's weed. Okay, weed. Lila grabbed the pipe out of Isaac's hand and threw it out the open window. The broom was right next to Isaac. So he hit... Ooh. The broom was right next to Isaac, so he hit Lila over the head with it. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. When you got to the part about his eye, I suddenly became convinced that I have that condition. Exactly. And spiraled yeah. off for a little while. Yeah, I know. It's scary. Have you had that? Yes, I have. Uh. Yeah, just like him. Yeah. Can you see it? No. no. Well, should, does anybody have any questions?
Any thoughts? Yes, Gina. Yeah. What's your process of absorbing it in the material? So how do I What do I do with it? Or yeah, how do you rip the detail and think like, well it also works? Like what's your how do you figure that out? Because yeah, yeah. it could be wrong. Because you've had that too, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, not all of it. Yeah. Well, I mean I think the good thing was that he didn't, he wasn't that, he, went, he didn't do, my publisher didn't give me specific notes, like you have to change this or that. He j it was really broad, like this, this all needs to be linked up more. Maybe he gave me a few specific suggestions, but um, I, th I think the key for me is first of all, like sitting with it. I mean, I, I probably for any of you, when you've done something that you care about, whatever it is, whether it's writing or something else, and someone tells you that it's not good or there's problems with it, the, the first reaction is, is anger and, um, and denial, like that, you know, they're just, they're just stupid or crazy or don't get it. But um, so I think I, I think you just, I just have to sit with that for a little bit, like sit with my disappointment and kind of feelings of not wanting to, con a lot of it is just feeling like I'm done with this. Like I don't want to write work on this stupid thing anymore. I want to work on something else. I, I'm, I've spent enough time on this. But I think, um, but then after a couple of days or however long it takes, I look at, I'm, I, I, I go, okay, and I look at it and, um, I, I seem to get be able to get distance. I think maybe the secret for me is that I really actually love re rewriting, and so there is I, you know, I like I like the idea. It's fun for me, and so it's a lot easier to rewrite than to write something new. And so, in, in that way, I'm drawn to go back to it. I, I'm probably more of an over rewriter than an under rewriter, and so um, it's, it's harder for me to let things go. There, one of my one of my favorite stories, I, I've spent um, 20 years at UCSC working with another fiction writer. There's only two of us there. The other person is Karen Tayamashita, and she, um, she does research and research and research, and then she writes incredibly fast. So she wrote, you know, her last book, I Hotel, it's called, it's about five or 600 pages, and she, yeah, she wrote it in a summer. And, and so, and she's always, she thinks I'm insane because I'm, it takes me so long to write this little book. It takes me 15 years to write this tiny little book. And um, I remember when my, it took me 15 years to, uh, or 10 or 15 years to write my last novel. And I remember when it, it was finally coming out, I, I, I came over to Karen's and I was like, Karen, my book's coming out. And she goes, which book? And I said, you know, the book, the book I've been working on. And she was like, oh my God, that old thing. <laughs> so yeah, so anyway, yeah, so I'm a super reviser and um, and I think that saves me. I, I, not when I was, when I was younger, I wasn't. I was like more move on kind of person, but I've become someone who really likes to revise and things seem really tight, but then once you start ma making it messy again, then it's okay. I think that one moment where you're going to go in there and it all looks pretty and it seems to it seems to look good, um, then it's really hard to make it messy again. But once it is messy again, then all these possibilities rise up, and it, it's really exciting. Like anything could happen, and you can get that same adrenaline hit. Like, oh my God, something I get something new. You know, that that feeling like something new has happened in it, or connections that um, are cool, and and you know the reason. The reason why we create things. Yeah. Thanks, Sina. Yes. Yeah. 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 So the the question is, if anybody didn't hear that, how how do you keep invested? In, how do you keep invested in the work? Um, I think I I mean I totally remember when I when I was felt the way you did. I, it's just a lot easier to just move on. Um, 
I think that I, w I used to be, I would, so I would write something and then I would, there would be this moment where I figured out what it was about and I figured out um, the meaning that it had for me and then I felt like I was done. Like I, so I got, I get, I get why I wrote it and I get, and I just didn't want to work on it anymore. And I just, and that, and then someone would say, you know, my teacher, whoever would say, but it's not, they don't get what it's about, you know? And then I, um, and then I would be like, I don't care. And then I just, you know, continue. But, um, but at some point I think I, I think I did care that other people also um, had some sense of a meaning in my, or some, I don't know, meaning is sort of a, but some resonance that it felt thick, might, that they under, had some sense of my stories. And so then I, um, I began to, to do an, more revisions, thinking about, okay, what does this work for other people, not just myself? And, um, and at this point, I, th I think I've kind of, I've been writing for a really long time, so I think I've kind of, um, it's sort of second nature for me. I don't really have to think as much about um, doing that, doing the extra revisions for other, other people. It's sort of just do it. Um, I don't know. I think, that I, like I said, I think there comes a point where revision, I don't know how you feel about this, Ben. I, do you think it's easier to throw something away or continue to revise? I mean, I've never thrown anything away in my life. <laughs> I, me neither. I, but my process is a little different. Like, I try to write a new story every day, like just a first draft. But oh, like, my God. So I try to write a new story. So you weren't joking when you said 200 stories. No, I mean, they're terrible. They're just first drafts. Like, I, you know, yeah. just, and I write them very fast. First draft usually takes like 25 minutes or something. Yeah. Um, so every day I try to write a new story, and then after that, then I work on something else. Yeah. Um, and usually... You know, I just have all these files in my computer and just one of them calls to me that day and so I work on that one and so I'm just constantly generating new stuff, working on whatever sort of calls yeah. to me from the past Yeah. and then sometimes something will get going and kind of catches fire and I'll work on that pretty hard and yeah. until I get tired of it or, or until it clicks and I defeat it, you know, but I never, like I've never deleted a story, just some of them I, yeah. I forget about, I guess. Yeah. Do what he does. I think that I, I, I think I think that sounds like a great process. It's kind of a nightmare, actually. <laughs> it I mean, sounds I just good. I have so many stories in my head all the time. It's so it can get a little confusing. Yeah, but it but it also sounds like wildly generative, which is very cool. Yeah. It takes a long time, though. I mean. Yeah. It's usually like five years from when I write a first draft to. Yeah, I mean I, that happens to me too. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, either way, right? You're, you're writing, and either you write a many stories and then go back and work on some, or you work on one story. I don't know if it really makes that much, but whatever yeah, works. Yeah, <laughs> whatever works. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Ali. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I, it goes both ways. So sometimes there's, um, like when I visited the Winchester Mystery House, as soon as I visited, I was like, I, I want to write about this. And I spent, ye I'm not joking, years trying to write about uh, Sarah Winchester, who's this really fascinating character, but I couldn't get into her. I couldn't make, I kept trying to do this sort of Angela Carter thing with her, and it just wasn't working. And then... I went to a I went to a, um, exhibit um, in San Francisco at a museum on Houdini, and I saw in the exhibit that he had visited the Winchester Mystery House and that he had been in San Francisco during the World's Fair. And I thought like, oh, and I had always loved Houdini, and so I was like, oh, I I can do Houdini. Like I could do it through. I could get to Sarah Winchester through Houdini. Um, so she's still kind of a mysterious figure in my story, but Houdini is not mysterious and so it's kind of in his voice and so so there so that's one way other way like um in another story a little girl crawls under the um a bed and finds a dildo so I did you know I need to think about like what would be a funny dildo so I just look you know look on the web for what would be a funny a dildo that I thought would be funny and um yeah yeah that's what writers do yep getting paid for that 
Um, so, so yeah, it goes it goes either way. Or for example, uh, the, the piece I read about Anne Hutchinson, um, that's just this story that has um, haunted me since I read it. It's, um, and I never, I didn't ever, I w thought maybe I could write something bigger about it, but then it's just that little piece in the, um, embedded in the short story rather than a bigger thing, so, um, yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's a, that's really interesting. Um, I, I'll look for that Amy Bloom collection. Um, yeah, I think somebody asked me, or at another reading, um, or some, maybe an interview or something, that why does my that my book is um, bookended by haunting? So that there's a, it starts with ghosts and kind of ends with ghosts, and um, and then I didn't really know how to answer that except for that I think. I think we are um, all, you know, haunted by. Um, so I think maybe my writing or my life, all, all our lives are haunted by both the past and also by the loved ones we've lost. And um, and I think also for for writers, haunted by other writers who've who've got, who've written in the past, and so. Um, and figures, and somebody else said, would, that really surprised me at first, um, someone was introducing me at a reading, and they said that my book was haunted by the Holocaust, and that isn't something that I had um, consciously thought about, but I, I, I think that that is, that makes sense too, that there, um, that the, that there is, there is that, that feeling of a haunting of um, kind of apocalyptic moment um, from the past as well. What what do you think about haunting on ha close to Halloween? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I, I don't really think, I mean, it, the first thing that came to mind when you talked about what's happening with horror is the new Haunting of Hill House yeah. series. Did you watch it? Not yet, no. Has, have people watched it? I don't want to ruin it for anybody. No. Can I just say yeah. something? Can I, or no, I can't? No. Yeah. No, it's just it's just that okay. So I'm just I'm not going to point the person out, but um, so my best friend from when I was um, nine years old is here, and she's actually Shirley Jackson's granddaughter. So oh, wow. this is the haunting is happening here. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Anyway, what about the haunting of Hill House? It just you know it's so it's it's not the book, the haunting of Hill House, yeah. and it's not the movie, the haunting, the Robert Wise one. They just completely like reinvented it. It's totally different characters different storyline, everything yeah. is different. It just is called The Haunting of Hill House. And then throughout they draw in kind of strands from the book and the movie, like images or lines or character names or little obsessions or shots, something like, you can see that they really love The Haunting of Hill House mm -hmm. and now they've made something else 
called The Haunting of Hill House that shows that they really like it. Or, yeah, different. like that book is haunting the yeah, thing. Yeah. yeah. But then at the end, like, I mean, I don't actually remember being all that scared by the book. I love the book, but I don't remember being all that scared by it. But the movie is just terrifying, uh, you know, and it's rated G. Yeah. Rated G, and it's the scariest movie I've ever seen, I think. <laughs> um, and it doesn't, like, you don't come out of it feeling good about anything. <laughs> I mean, it's terrifying. Yeah. And they made this series, which is like a gigantic hit. And when you get to the end of it, it's like a feel-good romantic comedy about, like, the healing of a family. Oh, really? And it's just like, and I, I can see that that's why it's popular. Yeah. And it, I just found it so infuriating yeah. that they did that. Yeah, to that book. That's actually because I had read review. I was excited, really excited about um, watching it, but then I read the reviews and I got, which said what you said, and I just thought I'm not going to watch it because that's too infuriating. Yeah, I will say there, like episode five is amazing. It's terrifying. (laughs) I'll just skip to it. If it were just episode five, it would have been. Yeah. Would have been flawless. Yeah, I think. Did you have a question? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Where should I start? (laughs) Exactly. It's just, there's just so many. Um, My favorite thing about my own writing. Um, You know what I would say about my favorite thing about my writing? Because I think I came to it really late. And that's why it's like a new, um, when when I was, when I was starting up as a writer in college and even grad school, I would write these entire stories with not a single line of dialogue. And they were just like very lyrical. And, and every time I was in a workshop, people would be like, um, are you a po- maybe you should be a poet. You know, they were, and I, um, I don't think they were saying it as a compliment either. And, um, and, fi- and finally, I, um, I started, I took some playwriting classes and just kind of started trying to teach myself or learn how to do dialogue. And, um, and I feel, so I think now that I actually have dialogue in my fiction and I, um, I, I have dialogue that makes me laugh. I think that's really fun. Like I, um, when I'm writing, people say funny things and I, you know, that, that's how I entertain myself in, in you know, my mornings. And so I, I think maybe I would say that that's the thing. And then also maybe the, the historical stuff that I didn't make up at all, but that, of course, that stuff I'm deeply in love with, um, so yeah, I think that's a good question. The thing I like the least, um, sometimes I do it. Sometimes I can do this thing where I forget. I I get so um, obsessive about a theme that I I start moving my character around characters around like chess pieces to to do to like create this thematic whole and forget that they're real people, you know, that they should be surprising and full. And that's the thing I hate most about what I do and that I try to not do. Yeah. Thanks. Yes. From the No, you didn't invent them. <laughs> like the elevator pitch? Oh. Yeah, I mean. Yeah. Yeah, it's impossible. Yeah, I'm yeah. really bad at it. Yeah. Are you are you good at it? Well, now I just say that I write kind of Twilight zone tales. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. Could you th- well get back to me on what I tell me what I, I could say something like that? I, I'm really bad. I'm pathetic. It would take me like six months. <laughs> exactly. I'm really pathetic at it. I do. I cannot. Yeah, I'm not good at it. I can't. I also have a resistance to it. Like I don't want to say. Although I've started saying I write about. Um, I write about utopia. Hmm. If it's broad enough that yeah, and yeah. people just go. Mm. <laughs> don't want to read that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's funny. <laughs> yeah. Do you find that when, you know, as a like critic say other people try to sort of define what you do that it's helpful or that they always want to say that? Oh no, that's super helpful. Like when somebody says like that person who said that I was 
you know, my book was haunted by the apocalypse. That was really interesting. And um, somebody else said um, that the last story in, in my book was uh, my Moomin Troll story. And that was so great. I mean, I didn't mean it to be a Moomin. I love Moomin Troll. I'm, I'm totally huge fan but there's there is a reference to moomin troll but i hadn't thought of the whole story as being a moomin but then i was like yeah that is a moomin troll story so no i i I really appreciate it and um when people say mean things like critics um i try to keep an open mind mostly fail but yeah yeah any any final questions or You mean why their motivation? It's never once occurred to me they were trying to push me to do better. Never. (laughs) Never. No, I actually and I and I review books too. I don't think I don't think critics are trying to push the writer to do better work. They're just trying to evaluate the work and they I don't think they even think about how the writer, it's, it's not for the writer, it's for the other readers, yeah. yeah. I, I always appreciate just them talking about it. That's really. true, you know? whatever they say, wow. Yeah. <laughs> just, uh, just measure it by column inches, <laughs> exactly. right? Exactly, exactly. There's my name. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think, are we good? Yeah, thank you all so much for coming and happy Halloween and yeah, we're here. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.